everybody, and welcome to the Enneagram Journey Podcast with your Enneagram godmother, Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and joining us today on the show is our very own Enneagram 8, Christine Min from Los Angeles, California. Today, let's talk about the Enneagram and context and different cultures, what causes you to move to your stress number, Christine is an 8 married to another 8, what's it like for 2-8's parenting, what does spunky mean to you, and... How important is a handshake? Today's plug is for our very cool Enneagram Journey face mask. One for each Enneagram number, one through nine. Perfectionist, the helper, the achiever, the romantic, the observer, the loyalist, the enthusiast, the boss, and the mediator. Visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com or suzannestabile.com or theenneagramjourney.org and you'll be able to find a link at any of those spots. Let's keep sharing grace and growing compassion and uh, get to today's episode. Each of our Enneagram numbers, but particularly right now, uh, female aggressive numbers and male um, heart-centered numbers. So I have always been intrigued by your awareness of your eightness. And I wonder if that's because you're married to an eight and if that um, highlights the difference in male and female eights. And I've never asked you that question. Can we start with talking a little bit about uh, what's it like to be an eight married to an eight? This is a first on the Enneagram Journey podcast. Yeah, I'd love to talk about it. Um, I, I think it's so amusing to see how shocked and horrified people are when they find out I'm married to an eight. Um, but for me, I couldn't imagine being married to anyone else. Um, Suzanne, I talk to you about this all the time about how I grew up in a family within a culture. I'm Korean American, um, just, and even not even just being Korean American, but even just in American culture, being a female eight is not particularly popular or well-received. So I grew up, um, hiding, suppressing, being ashamed of the things that made me an eight. And um, I feel very, very fortunate and lucky and blessed to have um, found another eight to be a life partner with. My husband is an eight and somehow he thinks my eightness is like the best thing ever. And so it's not that he necessarily um, made me more aware of the eight. It's just he gives me freedom to be that and it's not a problem for him. Um, I think even mm-hmm. from very, very early on in our marriage, it became very crystal clear to me that while we have other issues in our marriage, as everyone does, there's no such thing as a perfect marriage, um, I could not relate to other couples, married couples who talked about communication issues. We get straight to the point, doesn't hurt my feelings, doesn't, his, doesn't hurt his feelings, and we're able to kind of nip things in the bud pretty quickly there's no such thing as passive aggressive in our household. And um, I think when I talk to him about my dreams, about the, the things I want for the world, the way I feel useless and meaningless when I'm not in the world making a difference, um, he is able to hold that mm-hmm. for me and hear it and encourages me to, to do it and to be big and to do all those things. Um, I would say the, the main difference and the differentiating factor in us more than that he's a male and that I'm a female, 
Um, and the obvious, like he's more well-received in society than I am because he's a male, et cetera, et cetera. I think the biggest differentiating factor for us is um, our subtypes. So it's funny now mm -hmm. when we get in little skirmishes, I laugh at him and I'm like, you are so self-preserving and I don't like it. <laughs> and for him, mm -hmm. he recognizes that the things that um, I feel an itch to do that he doesn't and that he can't understand, um, those things are all kind of attributable to the fact that I'm so social and um, like I want to be out in the world. Mm -hmm. And those two differences, I think, really came became a lot more clearer even during this quarantine phase. You know, he is at home. He's not mm -hmm. traveling anymore. He um, his work is busy, but he still has a job. We're financially fine. And his three most favorite people in the world are me and our kids. And we are safely at home, mm -hmm. we're healthy, so he is happy. Whereas for me, now that I have, you know, like as healthy as we are, I am dying inside that I can't be out in the world. I can't be a part of society. I can't be, you know, elbow deep in the community that the way I typically am. So um, I would say that mm -hmm. that's sort of been the biggest differentiating factor, but um, I love being married to an eight. Sometimes when he is too aggressively against something I want to do, I ask him to please tap into his nine, um, <laughs> which he's not that fond of doing, unfortunately. But yeah, it's, it's been a great partnership for us. And um, I think learning the Enneagram, we learned it together. And then I went on to study it more in depth with you, Suzanne. But um, learning it together on the same day and then going through this journey together has been such a gift. I remember that day. Um, uh, and I remember watching the two of you. I, in fact, I think that day I said, y'all need to come to Texas and do, you got to do more. Mm -hmm. I was uh, fascinated by, uh, I, I think now that I know both of you looking back, what must have been affirmation for you? Uh, about who you are. Absolutely. I think who I was has been such a fundamental struggle for me because I know, as I know a lot of eights feel deep down, I'm, um, everything I do is well-intentioned. Everything I do has a mm -hmm. very, um, as a motive, motivation that's has so much integrity. And I just, I want so badly for the world to be better. And I want organized organizations mm -hmm. to be more efficient. I want leaders to be more effective. Um, like that is always my end goal. And that's how um, I find meaning in my life. But mm -hmm. in being uh, an eight and being a female eight, whether, like I mentioned earlier, whether that's just culturally or um, just however it is that women are expected to behave, I think being um, dissuaded or discouraged from actually using my strengths and acting on them has felt incredibly disorienting my entire life. And when I got to hear from you um, that this is something that, this is a strength, this is not a weakness, this is something that society kind of is not that into, it absolutely felt like an affirmation. And I felt seen, I felt understood, I felt like I was okay, probably for the first time ever. And I think I can attribute it, I can attribute my own personal journey towards self-awareness to that day. Like that moment in that chair, looking at you in that office, 
with those people, um, it, it was a completely life-changing moment for me. And um, it has meant so much to me. As a Korean American, did you have any difficulty identifying your Enneagram number initially? Or did you, and then the follow-up question is, how much do you identify with your stress number with that five, uh, five movement? Um, as a Korean American, I think I personally did not have a difficult time identifying with my number only because a lot of my frustrations and um, disappointments and um, kind of the, the different things that would cause conflict had sort of bubbled up to the surface at around the same time. So I knew very, very well what how I was motivated. I knew very well what people didn't like. Um, I knew very well how my natural way of speaking or being direct or being able to get to the root of the problem or filling a, a vacuum and not wanting to take the lead, but seeing that there was such a dearth of leadership and being willing to take that on. Those things were all at the surface. So for me, it was very easy to recognize that right away. At the same time though, I have been disciplined and trained and beaten into a certain way of being. So the way that my eightness manifests externally um, might not necessarily match up with how a stereotypical eight or a male eight or um, just how eights are generally defined would, would maybe make sense to other people. But um, it's, I think, being able to see your number accurately, despite culture, despite um, social expectations, and sometimes your culture will put very, very rigid standards on you, and being able to pierce through that to see the Enneagram number, I think would have been impossible for me to do even a couple of years prior. Before you talk about uh, stress uh, and answering Joel's question. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> I just want you to know that I I uh, I gave you away yesterday a little bit. Um, I am editing a series of books for IVP. Uh, it's a forty days as a one two three four five six seven eight nine, and the four mm -hmm. is a young Korean American uh, female, and she. Mm -hmm. uh, introduced herself in a way during this call that is, um, well, it reminded me of you talking about being an eight and being Korean American, even though she's a four. And uh, she started talking about her background and how it didn't allow for her foreignness. And I said, oh, sweetheart, I have a present <laughs> for you. And her name <laughs> is Christine. So I'm going to hook the two of you up. Um, by email. But my point in bringing that up is my awareness that I, I think I know as much as most people or maybe more than most about fours. And I know a lot about being a female four. And I have received the gift from you of understanding that I don't know about being a Korean-American female four or a Korean-American female eight. And I, I actually don't think we're going to be able to um, have that as part of a growing body of Enneagram work unless it comes 
from people who are representing their own experience in their own culture as their number. I, there's no other way for us to get there to that. I, there is no path for me to get there. And so I'm, uh, Joel and I are going to do a lot of conversation with a lot of folks and we have to kind of figure out, all right, if you have uh, an hour, what questions are you going to ask that help with understanding cultural or racial difference? I think one of the questions Joel asked you, and then I'd love to hear what you think an important question is and why. And his question was, how much time do you spend in stress and kind of what gets you there? Like, what causes you stress as a female eight and what cause, and, and what does it look like when you make that move? The, I, I would say the primary cause of going into my stress number is inability to control what's going on. Um, when things feel completely out of my control and I can't um, grit my way into making it work out, I can't um, work hard or read up enough or make the calls or negotiate or do all the things that work for me in my normal life, um, that work for me in my professional life as, a, uh, as an attorney, that have worked for me just as someone who likes people and can empathize when I feel like there's nothing I can do, that's when I sink real quick into my, my stress number, which is five. Um, for me, I have learned that when I go into five and it's unhealthy, it feels like silent rage to people because typically I'm so, um, and I'm so proactive, I'm so I'm positive, um, I'm can do, I'm a doer, all those things. But when I'm in five space, um, I've been told it feels like rage, even though I feel like I'm doing everyone a favor by not ever showing that I'm in this phase. So um, it feels very cold because um, I'm usually, I usually bring warmth. And um, as an, as an mm -hmm. eight, and I would say even when I'm in my, number and, and health, which is going to it too, um, I feel like one of the primary objectives of my life is to make sure no one is ever excluded and everyone's included. So that's a very warm feeling and that's sort of how I like to live my life. But when I'm in five, it feels cold to anyone who's ever experienced me before because it's such a foreign feeling where I would shut down. Um, when I am in stress and it's healthier, I do lovely productive things where I can be quiet and still with my thoughts like fly fishing, um, just going for quiet walks and being alone with my thoughts where I don't have to do anything to change anything and I can wait it out until whatever's going to happen happens. Um, I think in the beginning of this quarantine phase, I had never felt more five than I'd ever been. And um, I basically kind of hunkered down. All I did was read articles. Um, I could not get enough information. And, um, you know, like this is, a, if there was ever a situation that we couldn't control, like this is one of them. It's mm -hmm. completely upended our entire lives. The entire society, the entire world is, is essentially at a weird standstill. And um, with, the, with the recent Black Lives Matter, uprisings and kind of the the continuing work of that it feels so big and sometimes being stuck at home 
not being able to go out and do anything or um, it feels very like I, there's nothing I can do to control it. And so um, I just read a lot and um, I think to myself about kind of what could be done later at a time when we can start doing things a lot more proactively. And um, in the meantime, I go out on the streets with my children on random Fridays with signs and, you know, do little things to make sure that we are still staying active. But um, sure. the, the stress piece really does come in when I can't control anything where usually I'm able to muscle my way through one way or another. One of the things that Billy says about Joey is that she has to control the scene, not necessarily the people, but the scene. Is that, does that ring true to you? For me, it doesn't. No, I need to control is, um, it sounded more the outcome. Okay. Got it. Do you have more or less patience during this time? Well, when my children were in school, I had way less patience because I was the homeschool mom from hell Mm -hmm. Mm because that sucked. But, um, I think right now I have Hmm. I think it depends. When it comes to COVID and the COVID response, I have no patience because the consequences of certain actions or inactions have such dire consequences that um, I feel incredibly frustrated to know that I that we can't do better. Things like um, right. some of the, the racial inequities, I feel that I have more patience, not in that I have patience for not acknowledging it, but I have more patience in knowing that the true, real, meaningful change takes time. Um, And I want to get started Mm -hmm. on it for sure, but I'm not expecting that tomorrow suddenly things will be perfect and we have all the answers right now. I think I have a lot of patience for wanting people to buy in and get on board and understand Mm -hmm. what's happening Mm -hmm. and why it matters to all of us. Um, and I'm willing to take the time to do that. And, and that's something where, um, I, I have a lot more patience and maybe it's because it's so important and it will take time. Yeah. It's interesting, uh, to me, I have, I I don't know if I have more patience, but I have (laughs) less, um, less urgency, I would say. I'm not sure that's the same thing as more patience, but I am um, mindful of the fact that I think I've always said that I think you can find God in everything. And I think if you, from my Christian perspective, I believe that you can find God in everything. And I think the conversations around racial inequity need time if the majority of people are going to hear them and COVID gives that COVID insists that people stay aware and pay attention and think because we're in this place where we can't just get back to all the things that used to fill our time. And I, I wonder if, um, from a perspective of an aggressive number, you ever feel like you need to fill time or if you just by your way of seeing, fill it? 
I just fill it. Um, it doesn't even occur to me that there's time to fill because it's just always filled. But um, yeah. I agree with you on the COVID giving us time to reflect and read. And um, we get to kind of pause from the busyness of everyday life. But I think this is where the mm -hmm. wisdom of the Enneagram and understanding how people respond and react to things really is so crucial because um, not everyone will get things the same way. And it's, it's a choice whether or not you're going to use this time wisely. And it's, it's a choice whether you will open yourself up to seeing things differently than you did before, especially if you don't know any other way of seeing things. Um, if the way that you saw things has made sense for you this entire time, then why would you be um, prompted to change it? And while, the, while things are happening outside, um, I think if you know, understand yourself and are willing to do this work where you're, maybe you're aware that you tend to withdraw, you can recognize that in yourself and see how am I withdrawing right now as opposed to doing work that actually needs to be done, actually engaging in conversations that need to be had. Um, if I'm dependent, how much am I still relying on old sources of authority or you know existing groupthink mm -hmm. that needs to kind of start evolving. And um, my mm -hmm. hope and why I love the work that you do, Suzanne, and I wish every person could hear what you had to say and could really absorb and learn this wisdom is because it's not just about these nine ways of seeing and, you know, um, it's not like, right. like, what Disney princess are you? It's, it's more, what would it look like yeah. if you actually stopped to recognize how you're motivated how you respond, what your instinctive responses are, and um, what you can, mm -hmm. how you can stop and think maybe there are other ways to do this. Maybe there are other ways that people receive this. Right. Maybe this is something that um, I, can, um, I can be more of myself in, in a way that's not just habitual. And um, I, I'm, right. I'm the biggest, as you know, I'm the biggest fan of you and the biggest fan of this work and this wisdom and everyone should know it. <laughs> Is there something from this slowdown and this self-observation that surprised you about you or you and Michael, just something that has come from all this that you didn't expect would happen? This is, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say it with the um, hope that it's received the way I mean it, because no one loves, like, I adore my children. I adore my husband. I love my family. Um, I would do anything for them. But I realized that I need outside um, stimulation. I need community. I love coming home to my family, but that's not all there is for me. And I'm a great mom and a great wife. Um, when I'm able to find rest at home as opposed to making this my entire universe. And I always knew that I like friends. I knew that I, I, like, um, I like being part of the world. I knew all those things about myself, but um, it's interesting how I never love the people in my household more. I just think they're such fantastic human beings and the world is so lucky that um, these three people exist in it. And I need to go outside. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting because um, when I started having children, Joey was born in 1978. 
And um, I just gotten a coaching job at SMU, which was had, didn't exist and uh, required a lot. And um, during that time, there was an argument going on between women who were working and women who were staying home and a judgment of both, you know, like you should be home with your children. That's your role in life. That's where you should be. And uh, the, the, the should from the other side was you should probably do some things outside your home because your world's getting pretty small, right? Your worldview is pretty small. And I don't know that we've ever completely gotten over that. I don't know that we've ever, like, I'm not surprised that you're saying, I hope people understand this right. I love these human beings, but I need to be out in the world. If it takes us that long to accommodate a, a new opportunity for gender difference, Mm-hmm. then it makes me mindful of how long everything is going to take in terms of change. R- real change takes a long, long time. I think that's why um, I'm so excited about the fact that earlier today you spoke with people who are young and who have been studying this for so long. And um, I I think it's, I, I'm kind of skeptical that the, ch- the meaningful change is going to come from us. I think the meaningful change is that we are willing to take the time to teach the younger generations how it could be. You know, the I, yeah. I'm a working mom. My kids are pretty young. And, um, you know, I think feeling guilty about it or reverting back to old traditional um, gender roles in the household, especially during this time of COVID, has been mm-hmm. has made things very apparent. But I remember one time I was driving this, driving the kids to school and my son asked me, hey, mom, how come you don't come to every party at my school? Because like some of the other moms, like, how come you don't go come, come to everything? And um, I told him, you know, um, you and Mabel, my, my kids are Matthew and Mabel. I said, Matthew, you and Mabel are the most important people in the whole world for me. So if you need me to be somewhere, I would drop everything to be there. And if there's a party that you really want me at, I wouldn't miss it but you have a lot of parties at your school and I don't think I need to be at all of them. And you know, when you're at school, mom, and this is when I was working um, as in-house counsel for a beverage company and um, it was very, very busy and intense and it was a lot of work. And I told him kind of broke it down for him in a way that he could understand. I said, you know, mommy works in an office when you're at school, because when you're at school, I don't need to be home. And, um, I do really important work and the business can't, they need my thoughts and opinions and my work in order Mm -hmm. for them to continue doing what they do. And while you guys are at school learning, mommy is um, an important person at my job and they really value having me in the room when they make decisions. And so if you need me, I'll be there because you're the priority, but do you really need me at every single party? And he said, no. <laughs> and that was that. And no. my hope in, in telling him that is maybe our generation might not get it. And the people in our generation are too used to a leave it to beaver, you know, kind of cleaver household. 
Um, mm-hmm. Even even the people who are dads now, maybe they're, they've they've been so used to seeing their dads fill those traditional roles. But my hope is we can be a little smarter about how we raise our kids and model something a little bit different. So by the time they're adults and in, in positions to actually make these meaningful changes that we wish we could see, that they they know something different, that their world is bigger than just mom stays home and comes to all my parties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really important to be able to say all the things you're saying about, I need to be out in the world and I need to work and I need to make things happen. And I love these humans at the same time. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I kind of heard in that story from you. And then as well, I hear Joey or I watch Joey and her parenting style is the level of honesty with their kids. Mm-hmm. There wasn't fluff there. It was honest and compassionate and, and real and honest. And I think, I don't know. I think that's a gift that eights have mm-hmm. naturally, but I also think it's something that parents now are starting to embrace a little bit more than the, uh, fantastical just kind of ideas that our parents and your parents gave to children in previous generations. Does that, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It absolutely does. And I, I also think that p- parents, my parents, and certainly generations before them, felt like they had to give the right answer rather than an honest answer. So the answer would often be, oh, I so wish that I could be at every party. When actually I feel quite sure, Christine, that you don't want to be at every party, um, right? That's not the answer. The answer is not, I wish I could. The answer is, if you really want me there, I'll be there. And I'm doing this other thing. You said it, you said it much better as usual. And I, what I think is lost a little bit is that I think previous generations, there's a lot of judgment for the next generation when it's really just the, we continue to evolve and to grow. And I think this is a great evolution of parenting that, that I think is wonderful that I think just maybe comes a little bit more natural, naturally to eights. I know as a seven, I'd, I don't want to go to the party. <laughs> <laughs> and if I didn't have an important job and have to work, man, every uh, jo- Jolie wants me to go on every field trip course and it's like i can't first of all and i need to work on explaining the the reality of it yeah and and i also think that um there are people who want to go parents who want to go to every party and and what i think we miss is when those of us who don't want to be there take a spot the people who do want to be there don't get to right like we, we are taking away from somebody else what is theirs to do. There's never been a school that sent out a <laughs> note that said we can't have any more parties because we don't have any parents, right? <laughs> I keep thinking about the things that I felt terrible about saying no to, like when Joey and then Jenny had their firstborns, and I said, I'm not going to babysit. And I'm telling you, that that's a hard one. And my friends would look at me like, that's terrible. You told them that? Why would you do that? And those are the same friends who complain about babysitting with their grandchildren, mm-hmm. right? And, I'm t- and I've heard people say to Joey when she said what she has told her boys, that's terrible. 
you, you, you know, and it's like, no, that is, this is who I am. And, and it's a good thing, which leads me to my next question. What is something as two eights raising children that y'all struggle with that you kind of need to pull from outside of yourself and your natural gifts? Um, the very obvious and frequent one that we deal with is not railroading our kids. Um, it's, it would be very easy to have them just kind of be little mini-me's and um, little robots. And we are very persuasive and we could make them bend to our will in terms of just things we want to do. And we're very conscious of the fact that um, we could do it, but that we don't want that for our kids. And so um, we, we do little things, you know, it's, it's like what makes the most sense for your family. For us as two eights who could very easily call all the shots, we allow our children to pick where we go on vacations. Um, when, my, when our children are upset about something, um, thankfully we understand the Enneagram and we know that our children, not everyone in the world is an eight, but um, I stop before I give them the pep talk or I stop before I discipline my daughter and I don't do it perfectly every time. In fact, I probably do it the wrong way more often than not, but at least sometimes I remember and I think, oh, it might be because he's doing this or me telling him to do it a certain way is not going to motivate him the way it would motivate me. And um, it allows me to give him a little bit more space. So um, I think just knowing that like my son is not an aggressive type, we back off a lot more. And when he's upset with us or when he has certain things that he really, really wants to do, even if I'm like, no way, um, we give him the space to explore it and, um, and fight for it and, and not feel like he just has to uh, merge with whatever we want to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's Enneagram and parenting right there. That is a huge piece of that. It has to do with how healthy you are and what you know about difference. And um, that's a, it's a huge, huge thing. You and I have talked over the last few years about uh, Enneagram and cultural difference. And I don't think we have time in a podcast to talk about every number and, well, we know we don't, every number, every culture. Like there's no, there's not a way to have that conversation. Do you think there are overarching questions or overarching things that we could be looking at or questions we could be asking ourselves and other people that would lead us to, or set my language would be set the table for, a better ongoing, growing understanding of cultural difference? Absolutely. Um, I think even asking something as simple as, how does your response align with a traditional definition of your number? And how does your response differ? And why does it differ? Um, I think, um, like, for example, um, I am not a bull in a china shop type of eight. Who knows if I grew up in a different household with, um, as, a, as a white kid, um, living somewhere else, I might've been, because that would have just, I would have just been able to kind of freely be me, but um, I 
I'm not. I'm not a bull in the china shop. And um, so sometimes when you hear about these like very, very aggressive eights um, and how they're, they're, um, they're so tough and all those things, um, I don't necessarily resonate with that. But what I do resonate with is um, being told that you're too bold in a certain way. And being bold in a certain context looks very, very different from a, a, a maybe a white mm -hmm. dominant context. And just give, being given the space to explore that and look back on your life and wonder, where did I exercise boldness in a way that's kind of different? Where, where you, you were not afraid to stand out, where you were not afraid mm -hmm. to speak up, where it was completely unpopular to do so, and yet you did because you had to um, defend an underdog or because you knew that it was the right thing to do, not because it's right or wrong, but just because that is where we need to go as a, an organization or where we need to, how we need to, to deal with the community and things like that. So um, I just think it manifests very differently. And so I think the questions to ask sometimes are, how do you, how do you know that you're an eight within the context that you were in. And, and to me, that's not just a cultural, ethnic, racial question. I think that's, how did you, mm -hmm. how does it manifest given um, your gender? How, how does it manifest given your sexuality? How does it manifest in all these other ways? And I think the more stories we hear and the more opportunities that people are given to answer that question, it gets broader and it gives more space to say, you know, I'm a three, but that's not how I, that's not how I present at all. And, but I know I'm a three because of X, Y, Z reason. Mm -hmm. Will you tell that story of the teacher that liked you and she called you a certain term? Oh yeah. And then you're, <laughs> I love that story so much. And I just think it, I think it teaches so much as well. Um, I was um, in first grade and this was my favorite, favorite, favorite teacher. And she loved me and I loved her. Um, her name was Mrs. Mukai, and I just, just thought she was the best. And um, come around, time to get our report cards, you know, the teachers get to write little comments. And I guess the, the teacher had written all these things about how, how lovely of a kid I was and how much she enjoyed having me in her class. And she wrote like, and you know, Christine is so spunky and it's just been a pleasure having her in her class, et cetera, et cetera. But every time I got in trouble after that, um, from my mom, she would always say, even Mrs. Mukai thought you were so spunky. And I always thought of spunky as being like a bad word. It's like a little bitchy kid. And um, like anytime I spoke up, anytime I was kind of um, defending myself or anytime I asked questions that um, were not welcome, it would always come back to even Mrs. Mukai thought you were so spunky. And obviously it, it broke my heart because this one person who I thought saw me and loved me and thought I was awesome mm -hmm. um, was used as a tool to sort of um, suggest that being that way was not appreciated or liked even by her. And so it was, it's so embarrassing, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until college when I was sharing that story with some friends where they were like, Christine, she wasn't saying that to trash you. Like, she was saying that to say how much she liked you. And it was just so jarring for me to recognize like, Mrs. Mukai did not say that to criticize me or say that I was awful. 
she said that to compliment me, but in the context mm-hmm. of our household, that was seen as so awful. Mm-hmm. I think we have so much to explore around uh, context and background and what's happening in the background as opposed to what's happening in the foreground. And um, it makes me, it, it, it makes me uh, curious as to how much of a child a teacher sees how much of a child a teacher gets to know. You know, they have so much power in our lives. And yet there's so often so much that they don't know about our context or mm-hmm. or where we come from or how we're going to manage. Do you think there are, um, this for you and Joel both, do you think there are times when your way of seeing the world as aggressive numbers is called for. Do you feel that freedom? Like, okay, I get to be, I kind of get to be me right now. I get to kind of do things the way I see them right now without hedging my bet. And if there are those times and you do recognize them, how is that in the context of everything that's happening right now? Is this a time? Is this a time in certain places? Do you uh, feel like there's something yours to do? All those questions. I love this question. Um, I can answer it in several different ways, but I would say, um, first of all, as I think part of it is age. I like being older. I would never go back. My daughter asked me the other day what age I would be if I could pick, and I said today. I would be now. Um, And um, I feel like as I've gotten older, I feel a lot more ownership over the things that I'm good at and the things that um, I can do well. And a lot of the things I do well, it's because I'm an aggressive number and, and I'm willing to do those things in a way that others maybe won't. And so um, as I've gotten older, obviously I've had a longer career um, I've experienced a lot more things. I've, um, I've done a lot more. And so I can own that. And there's almost a gravitas now where I'm not just this little pint sized kid being like, I think I know what we need to do and let's do it. It's in fact, it's, it's a lot more grounded and there's a lot more weight and authority behind that. And I don't, I'm not afraid to own it. Um, I remember one time recently we had a conversation, Suzanne, where you asked me, whether I agreed with the statement, I think it was um, Billy who said the future is closed. And you asked if I agreed with Mm -hmm. that statement. And I said, I totally disagree with the statement because I think the future is open. And um, as an aggressive number, I think we, as everybody, not just me, not just other aggressive numbers, I think we all can shape what the future looks like. And it's up to us to decide what it will be And in that case, it's very exciting that the future is this blank canvas of how we would like it to look like. And I can totally tell you how how I would love it to look like. And I'm spending my life personally, professionally to to hopefully move it even one millimeter into that direction. Um, Mm -hmm. Another way to answer the question is during this time specifically, how I feel as an aggressive number. I think that 
while yes, change takes a long time, yes, we need to be patient and things sometimes move at a glacial pace because we have to bring everyone along, this time today is so unique. It's a once in a lifetime situation where we have a pandemic, we're stuck at home. The, um, the world as we know it is kind of on this weird purgatory, like what's happening, no one knows what's gonna happen. Like there's so much that's not settled and everyone, every, there's no person who's been exempt from this new altered state of reality. Plus the, um, the growing exposure of racial inequality issues. Plus the fact that folks of different um, sexualities or genders and all those things, it's, there's all this exposure now to a point where you can't just say, hey, we're gonna go back to status quo, let's just wait it out and then we'll like get back to where we were before. Yeah. That's not gonna happen. And so if ever there is a time that's mm-hmm. exciting and we can actually make some meaningful changes that don't have to take glacial patience, um, it, it could be now. And, and that makes me incredibly mm-hmm. excited. And I feel like I wanna roll up my sleeves and, and be a part of it in whatever way I can. Joel? Yeah, I, I love everything that you just said. Uh, I think that what is being called for from probably all numbers, but if we're talking about like, I'll just speak for sevens, is the, the healthy side of sevens. Like people are not calling for the, the seven that isn't going to show up and that can't be counted on and is flighty and non-committive. But, but fun. But fun. Right. But they want the fun. They want the optimism and they want the action in a responsible uh, forum. And I think they're for, I think what people really want right now also, and what the world needs from eights and sevens and let's put threes in there is the confidence that the three of us have the, when things are uncertain you know, it's everything that you just described there of, okay, let's make a plan and move forward. And what can we do? You, when you, you brought up the comment about the future is closed. What's that definition that the definition of the word is to want the past to be something different? Not regret. Uh, uh, no, uh, it's uh, uh, forgiveness is wishing the past could be different than it is. I think there's a a lot of people have a desire for the future that they thought they were going to have. Mm -hmm. And that future is closed. Mm -hmm. And, but there's this wanting for, Oh, what, you know, on the simple side of things, the Dallas Cowboys season that, that could, that we (laughs) expected to have to the upcoming election and how that, you know, could have gone played out to everything in between as far as your family and the school year and work and you're, you opened a restaurant and it's about to open mm-hmm. and everything else, big and small. And I think what sevens in a healthy space can bring is an optimistic outlook moving forward. Mm-hmm. And I think people would really like that. I think that too. And for both of you, I think what you come to the table with has energy in it. I I think people who are not aggressive numbers are really struggling with energy 
just enough energy to start something new or try something new. And, and I, I'm honestly shocked. I, I thought going into this time as a dependent number that I thought, oh, thank God, I have all this room to get this book done, and that's gold. And it never occurred to me I wouldn't have the energy or what is the object of my dependency, which is other people. That's what, if I, the thing that has come up since live stream number one to right now, something that I guarantee has been mentioned or brought up or the theme that has been alluded to in every live stream, teaching, podcast, everything, conversation has been energy. You know, for now that this is a precedented time, a quarantine and all, and the pandemic, for the next pandemic, what do we need to know to take care of ourselves? Mm -hmm. It's everything around energy. Where do you get yours? What takes it away from you? That's right. Everything, because that just changed the entire landscape because there are people that couldn't go to their energy source and people that didn't know what was taking their energy. And then all of a sudden, a month into this thing, you're like, I'm zapped and I've gotten, and I don't know how to recharge. And it's putting a strain on all my relationships because we don't know how to communicate this or how to put our finger on what it is even. And it goes back to that. Yeah, you know, in this time, I've I've been lonely at times, uh, but I've only been really down three times. And the most recent is when we as a family started talking about the fact that all the grandchildren are going to go back to school and they're going to live with y'all, and that means that Dad and I have to not see you for a while. And I cried and cried because, and I go for times without seeing you. It's not that, but it's, you are my only source of energy outside of dad. And he is also a source of energy for his entire team at the church. And he's a nine. And I almost panicked about, well, what's going to make me feel anything? And I got a few deadlines from the publisher and I f- suddenly feel a little more energized, but it's like my energy source doesn't come from thinking and my energy source doesn't come from inside of me. My energy source is frankly being in this room, standing, looking at 40 or 50 people and engaging in two or three days of conversation about what could be if we all knew ourselves better. And you can't replace that at home. So I think it's a different question for dependent stance, for withdrawing stance, and for aggressive stance. And I think it's upside down. I actually think aggressive stance numbers are doing better with it than withdrawing stance numbers are. We, Christine, got the option of sending our kids to school or doing remote virtual learning. And we, you know, we talked about it. Pros and cons, highs and lows, whatever. And we elected for virtual learning that we'll we'll do it from home for the first semester is what we're planning on. I mean, you know, who who knows? Where where are y'all at on that? Well, uh, I'm in LA and my children go to school in Santa Monica and we don't have a choice in the matter because um, per the governor's uh, mandate, we cannot open our schools. 
But I think given what's going on, and it's, it's such a loaded question because everyone has an opinion on it. And I think doing it virtually, um, doing the distance learning makes the most sense. Um, I, I know a lot of talk has been going on about doing a hybrid model, but I think that actually causes more anxiety and inconsistency because you're waiting for the other shoe to drop every day. Like if, that's what I said. Is someone going to get told, sick and we're going to shut it down again? And then we have to do distance learning anyway. And then like, what's going to happen to like our plans for taking the kids to school and dropping them off at these weird times on different days. And, and then we have to change that again. So might as well just from the first shot, just like everyone stay home. You get, you guys figured it out, make it really, really good. And then hopefully we beat this thing quicker and then we can all get back to school faster. Cause that's what we all want. It's literally what I, that was my <laughs> outtake on this, but I got, I, this is the part of the show where I get to share a meme or whatever that I, that I like. I saw one the other day and it was someone's tweet. I think that had been captured and it said schools reopen and uh, you send your son to school with his Paw Patrol mask and then he comes home and he's got on the Spider-Man mask because he traded masks oh, no. with his friend at lunchtime. <laughs> and now the whole school shut down. It's like, that's, that's what's going to happen. And that's what, for our, for our son, Jace, that's what I said to Whitney. I was like, you know, let's say that we did feel comfortable with sending him to school. And I'm not saying we, we do, but I'm just saying hypothetically, let's say we felt comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem, odds are, there's going to be a hiccup. So why start one routine to change to another routine, to hopefully change back to another routine. Let's just marry this one idea. And I totally agree. And And also it's like, um, we forget about the teachers. Like they are going to be so exposed. Like who's going to take care of their families if they get sick. And, you know, especially if you're like a kindergarten or first grade teacher, if some kid is crying, it's not like you're not going to hug them and, and console them Mm -hmm. and comfort them. Like you, I don't think a good kindergarten or first grade teacher would be able to stop themselves from like, hey guys, six feet distance, you like dry your tears to me and like you deal with it, buddy. Like that's not going to happen. And so there's just, I mean, there's so many. That's how I treat my children right now when I'm in low seven (laughs) space. (laughs) Yeah, there, I mean, there's so many, you know, issues and I get it. There are a lot of issues, which makes the call so hard to make and why it's, it seems like no one seems to be able to make the call. But um, for me, I'd rather like know what we're planning for, do it really, really well, nip this thing in the bud, and let's get back to um, opening schools once this thing has been, you know, settled down rather than doing this half-assed, cockamamie, um, hybrid, it could shut down again tomorrow situation. But that's just me. (laughs) Okay, I have one more question for the two of y'all, and then I'll be quiet again for a good while. What we just shared are our opinions on this matter. Mm-hmm. Why, and I don't know if I have to state this for LTM purposes, you know, that is Joel Stabile's only opinion and LTM doesn't, you know, he's not representative of LTM and their thoughts and feelings on things. There are even people out there that are offended by it, just by this stance that we took on what we think about our children and their education. So my two questions for y'all are, why are people so threatened by the different opinions about things that are going on right now in our society around all the different topics and what solutions or hope do y'all have to remedy that? Um, I could, I could answer that first. Um, 
I think part of it is there's nothing else to control. And so if, if you can take a position on something and hold tight to it, and, and, and unfortunately there's this, I can't remember the term, but people will find the evidence and support to back up whatever opinion they want to hold. Mm-hmm. And so they feel right. very, very much supported in the opinion that they have and they've done their research. And so to say that you have a different opinion and um, would almost be to criticize their ability to gather facts, their ability to look at, to read and, and think critically. Um, it's so funny. I feel like both sides of, or there's, it's not even two sides. There's like 400 sides, but every side thinks they're the critical thinkers and the other people are sheep and are not thinking and don't know how to read, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think in that, what, what um, and this is not a political statement, this can apply to any organization. Part of the reason why people are so entrenched and have formed their own opinions and feel like they are the leading authority and having this opinion and it being right, is there's such an absence of leadership to say, great, let's, you know, welcome these, you know, you're allowed to have ideas and opinions, but we're going to go forward with this, this one. And you can trust that I have everyone's best interest at heart. You might not agree with me, but this is a leadership. And this is, this is what we are going to do as a society. And because we don't have that, and in any organization where you're lacking leadership, it will always devolve into tribalism, into um, your own opinions and the the sanctity of your opinion, and it becomes so personal and so entrenched. And unfortunately, um, I think that's what you're seeing today, not only just on a national level, um, how different counties are responding to a governor's orders, how parents are responding within um, a, a small school. Um, every Everyone feels like this is what they're entitled to, and it quite literally is life or death right now. You know, the BLM movement, it's about life or death. COVID precautions, it's about life or death. So um, they feel ever so much more justified to hold on to these positions and cling to them to the death. Oh, okay. I'll try to follow that. Um, (laughs) My uh, take is a little bit different. Um, I certainly uh, uh, would love for us to discuss it, but I think... I think discernment is very difficult, and I think uh, people don't know to work at it. They just discern things in the moment, and then they might go a long time before there's another moment that requires some critical discernment, not just critical thinking. And I'm convinced that um, there is one question that most people ask in the top three when they're trying to discern something that is the question that stops discernment cold. And that is, how is this going to affect me? Mm. So Joel, you and Whitney uh, both have big jobs that require uh, time and space. And you could neither one look at me and say, we discerned that it would be best for us to keep our kids at home because that's what's best for us. That affects us the least. That is not true. It affects the two of you the most, and it is the hardest for you. That decision is harder for you than the other one. 
And I'm just saying that to me means that you gave this a lot of thought and that you did what was best for the whole picture, not what was best for you or for Whitney. And Christine, I know you well enough to know that you too uh, didn't say, how's this going to affect me? Because you've been very clear that the, the thing you need to happen is you need to get out in the world. So it's not your love to think, oh boy, I get to get up and try to teach elementary school every day when I don't know how and technology's bad and I blah, blah. So what I'm saying is I don't think people come at the question from an honest place. So I want to start there. Second thing I'm saying is I think belonging systems right now are um, based on dualistic thinking. And that thinking is either you're with me or you're against me. And I think every decision having to do with school has been politicized. And so I think the, the, for the, I think for many people, consciously or unconsciously, these three things are all at play. Discernment, am, am I just figuring how this is going to affect me? Belonging. Do I want to do what these people are doing because they're my friends and that's the only belonging system I have right now and this is what they think? And if I choose this, does that put me at odds with other people who I agree with politically? And that is coloring everything and that, I think, is why we can't get anything done. And that will for sure offend people too. It takes me time to... To use the term discernment, it takes me time. When Whitney first asked me the question about homeschool and what do we want to do, my first response was, oh, my gosh, they need, Jason needs to go to school. Jolie needs to be around her friends. Like, she needs social stuff. And my initial thoughts, and there were thoughts. That's the other big key thing. I'll, I'm going to use two things that have been really big in my life right now. And one is the decision whether or not to go for the kids to go to school in person. And my response to all the different things around the black lives matter movement and my thoughts immediately for both of those are not at all the stance that I have today. And they're not polar opposites. It's just when it, when things first happen, I take, I do take in immediately and think about just certain parts of it. You're just thinking dominant. People who are thinking dominant are lazy thinkers and people who are feeling dominant are lazy around emotions. And that is true. It's just like, I just start thinking and then make, you know, snap quote unquote decisions. And then until after I process it some and think deeper and further especially with doing being what's next for me and then it gets to all right how do I feel about this how do I feel about all the different things around that and until I bring feeling into the into the picture into the decision making then it's an an inadequate decision a stance that I shouldn't take whether it's the final stance right or wrong I shouldn't be there until I've brought feelings into the picture. Yep. Yep. 
That's it. And I, I think what is uh, driving people that they aren't naming is belonging. I don't think there are very many simple questions on the table of any consequence. I think they're all pretty complex questions. And I think um, sound bites interrupt good discernment. And I think they're also all personal decisions. Nobody knows how your family works or how your kids operate. Nobody knows that but you. And so I just, um, I think that's all something we got to work with. And my hope for my children and grandchildren is that they never live again in a time when decisions that should not be politicized are. Uh, so we need to talk about something fun and happy that makes everybody love us because that, all of that is challenging stuff. <laughs> I, I would like to hear some about Grander View, if you want to tell, tell the world about that. Yeah, um, I've been um, consulting and working with various organizations, um, some boards, um, executives, teaching some classes. So it's it's been something that I've been, um, it's almost like a culmination of all my experiences and it's been fantastic. Most recently I taught a class, it was a four part series called the Enneagram in Context. And each week we had a group of people and each week we would explore something that was happening in the world or watch um, a clip of a TV show or read an article um, or a chapter of a book and just talk about how our number, um, we and our number responded to it. Um, and kind of going back to your question, Suzanne, is how do we and our number respond to it and how did our response deviate from how a, our number would typically respond from it? And it was just a way to explore mm -hmm. so many of the things that are going on in our, our world right now um, whether that is uh, one of the things that we watched, thanks to um, one of the folks who were taking the class, to, due to his suggestion, we watched the closing argument that Viola Davis gave in How to Get Away with Murder. And whether um, you would be able to make that argument or what it would take for you to be able to make an argument like that. And um, it was really fascinating to see how different numbers responded um, and and to, to allow yourself to bring your whole self to this conversation, not just what you think your Enneagram number would bring, but also in the context mm -hmm. of your culture, in the context of the kind of job you came from. And um, I would say one benefit of this quarantine is because it was over Zoom, we had people from all over the country on the calls. And um, it was really, really fun because um, fellow apprentices um, we're able to join as well. So um, Rachel, who's a seven, Kenny Benj, who's a five, we're part of the, the entire series. And then we also had special guest stars, John and Brian, um, who came to represent threes. So it was just this great opportunity for people around the country to come together to discuss very relevant, important things and share about who they were in context. And um, I just thought it was, it's one example of a class that allows you to, um, even if you're sheltering at home, explore how other people see the world, how other people mm -hmm. um, absorb what's happening and how it affects them and how the context of who they are actually plays into it. And maybe um, 
it's something that you can sit with and think about how to move forward um, after maybe this is all done. And um, mm -hmm. so Grander View is just, uh, the, the teaching is just one aspect of it. A lot of it, it's um, just corporate things where I um, advise on sometimes um, strategic initiatives. Sometimes it's about how to incorporate diversity and inclusion efforts into the workplace. Um, so it's just, it has been a culmination of the, the work that I've been doing, not only professionally as an attorney, but also um, the, the work I've been doing with you, Suzanne, my, my own self-awareness, uh, my desire for effective communication, because I don't think we can get to the next step in a productive way unless right. we are able to um, incorporate all those different things in a meaningful way. So thank you for asking. I, I'm so excited that you're doing that work and I, um, I hope it grows and grows and grows and grows because it's <laughs> so needed. One of the things I'd like to ask the two of you is um, I kind of feel like this space I don't want to talk about time right now so much as space and time. I'm wondering if this space is, if you think this space is giving people an opportunity to do the work we talk about with the three sheets, you know, where we talk about what you grew up believing and what you believe and, and the difference and, and how it never caught up with you. <laughs> like, you don't even believe that anymore, but the pace of life is so fast your new belief system didn't catch you, kind of. And I'm wondering if uh, there is some hope that people who have been in such a hurry every day to get everything done, that they just responded habitually, might be responding differently to life when we open up again, whatever that means, and if there will be pushback from people who have known them if they do that. Will it be like, what happened to you? You never thought that way before. Or will it be intriguing to people? That's a big lot of words to say two questions. I think that there's going to be pushback. I think for a country that claims to celebrate the individual, we don't celebrate the individual. <laughs> there was one template on how to do life. And then someone was like, that didn't work for me. Here's the template. And everyone keeps making a new template but no one gives space for one of the things I love about LTM, not to pump us up, but is that it's here's some tools for you to find your own way. Mm -hmm. And we're not telling you how to do something or how not to do something or that this is the way to do it. And we're open to learning. Like that's, a, that's the other part of it. Like the whole, the theme that is just screaming today in our conversations. And I know that this podcast will be, aired individually, but it's been around context and environment and just everyone, you know, if you haven't didn't participate in boot camp, there was a conversation around uh, culture and someone who spoke up about the black lives matter movement, who, what's the term they were that they're uh, from, they were born into a white family mm -hmm. and, so that they don't, you know, their experience of this is completely different mm -hmm. than a black human born into a, a black family, mm -hmm. which is a clearly completely different than me being born in my family. Mm -hmm. And they talked about how, where do they find their space in this? And everyone 
there's a lot of people looking for their space and where they belong and reevaluating their beliefs. Mm-hmm. So in that context, in their own family, right. getting pushback because they've reevaluated their beliefs around such a huge, huge topic. Mm-hmm. And now that they've reevaluated them, people are like, wait a second, we want the beliefs from before. So I don't, I think it's necessary and I think it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be well received. I agree with um, with what you said, Joel. I also am reminded, you know, it's funny, you started with talking about LTM. Um, I'm going to start talking about LTM too. I'm reminded of the, the I guess, the slogan that we, we use at LTM, which is um, solitary work that must be done in community. I think that is such a simple yet complex yet so perfect of a statement. Um, it's solitary work that must be done in community. And right now you're right, we have the, the circumstances and the time and the quarantine to be doing some solitary work, but it must be done in community. And I think there are some communities that people are gonna have to shed. And there are some communities that they will learn mm-hmm. to adopt and embrace. And that is incredibly hard and brave work to do. And um, I think because of COVID, because of social distancing, all those things already our typical communities have been disrupted. And um, I find my, even for me, Mm -hmm. I find myself talking more to people I never talked to before and talking a lot less to people I saw all the time. And um, I think Mm -hmm. your ability to stand in these new communities is going to be dependent largely on a, a sense of courage that it might be difficult for a lot of folks. As you, as you said, Joel, I think um, there are some families that will be very not okay with the new positions that you have taken on the basis of new information you have learned during this time. Your opinions mm-hmm. hopefully will have changed during this time because of the new information you've gathered. Sometimes there are some opinions that you will have solidified in in the presence of this new information as well. And I think it would be sadly naive to think that we we can continue this work once things open up again. But my hope, and I'm going to be hopeful because I, I care so much about people and hopeful that we can be better as a society for one another as well. I'm hopeful that um, some of these things will stick. And also, um, I am as an eight who wishes everyone can sometimes hold on to the energy of an eight. I wish everyone would sort of mm-hmm. um, go through the hardship of reevaluating, reformulating, and um, reconstituting your community so that you can continue doing this work. Not to say that you're going to dump people or that you can um, suddenly silo yourself differently. But um, there are going to be some communities that don't want to move forward, that want to go back, that liked Mm -hmm. um, white supremacy works for them, or, um, you know, Mm -hmm. they're nostalgic for the simplicity of their prior life. And my hope for all of us is that we will move forward in a way that is moving toward the future, in a way that will allow our children to be better than we are and um, and 
hopefully form communities that will encourage that kind of progress. Yeah, I uh, I don't think we're going to be able to add much to that to make this any better than it's been. Um, the one thing that I would like to say is that I everything the two of you just said makes me mindful of the fact that we're going to have to have a lot of grace for one another. People are just going to have to offer one another grace. Uh, we're all on a journey, and most of the people that I know are really trying to do life mm-hmm. well and do it right and be good and and be loving and all of that. And I think we need to approach all of it with questions instead of answers and grace instead of judgment. And I think if we can do that, then we we have a chance for the outcome of this horrific experience uh, to be something that we look back on, as Kierkegaard says, we live our lives forward, but we understand looking back. And I don't think we can understand this while we're in it. I think we're only going to understand looking back. And I hope what we see when we look back is growth and grace and questions and hope. So as we close this time together, because there will be more, I would love to know what you want the all the people who listen to us know about being a young female Korean-American eight. I think it would be helpful to know that we have a lot to offer. During this COVID time, we talk a lot about how maybe we're not gonna shake hands with people anymore because of germs and things like that. And I was telling a friend of mine that um, I'm gonna miss shaking hands with people. And she said, why? Like shaking hands is gross or whatever. And I was like, you know, um, I'm gonna miss shaking hands with people because it was the one thing that was socially acceptable that would allow people to see me and maybe erode a little bit of their biases because they would come in, I would shake their hand and I have a really firm grip and they would always stop and Mm. say, sometimes they would look in surprise, like delighted that I didn't have this limp handshake. And so many times Mm. I would hear, wow, you got a great handshake. And for a little second, I got to be one of them because my handshake was so super, it's, of course, it's socially acceptable to do it. And I got to do it as eight as I wanted. And it worked. And Mm -hmm. um, whenever I enter a room, I think there are preconceived notions about who I am, what I have to offer, what I'm capable of, or what role I should take in that room. And kind of like how my handshake kind of did some of the talking for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I would hope Mm -hmm. that people who hear this would know, huh, maybe whatever it is I think, whether it's if you're Asian and you're hearing this and you think I should be a little more subdued and a little more, um, you know, wallflowery, or whether you think that I'm, um, as a model minority, I should just shut up and be grateful for being white adjacent, or if, if, you know, like whatever the preconceived notions are, I would love for people to know that there's more 
in there and that mm-hmm. it's something that's mm-hmm. worth knowing. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, it is still true that we make our way, perhaps, with early impressions. And while you are um, very bright, female eight, you are not only not a bull in a china closet, but you are not an extrovert. I wouldn't refer, I wouldn't call you an introvert, but you're, you're kind of an ambivert. You don't, you don't step forward early unless somebody invites you to. And I've told you before, I, I feel like I missed a lot the first year that you were an apprentice because of that. Cause I didn't come get you because I didn't know I needed to, because you were an eight. And I think then my challenge to you, since I, I'm ever the teacher, or I try to be, um, find another way. If you're not going to shake hands, then spend some time finding another way so nobody else misses a year when they could have said, uh, come up here and do this. Come up here and tell us this. <laughs> come up here and show us this. So you find another way. I will. Give Michael a hug. Uh, kiss the babies on the head. Take good care of yourself. Uh, know how much we appreciate you and your presence in life in the training ministries. Thanks so much for Love you. Me. Love you. Bye, guys. That was so awesome.